Your, your table say What are some of the reasons that, that people sing? Okay, joy. Uh, Eileen says, and more generally, uh, Carla points out, to express emotions. Because, uh, okay, peanut gallery over here. <laughs> what, did you, what did you guys have to say? Oh. Oh. Peer pressure. Peer pre you have to sing because of peer pressure? Somebody at the table. <laughs> <laughs> well. Sing already. Sing. That might be, that might be a reason, too. Learning, sure, yeah. Singing, I mean, it's one of those things. Uh, tomorrow's Columbus Day, I think, right? Uh, and in 1492, right? You guys remember that? Um, because it's, it's, you know, it's a, it's a little song. Teach. What, what are the reasons? Reasons people sing. So learning, expressing emotion, peer pressure, comfort. It helps to memorize things. Yes. You know, if something yep. is put to music, I can memorize it very, very quickly yep. as opposed to just words. Yeah, it's true. You put something to music, it, it facilitates the uh, memory learning something by heart. Very much so. They're kind of groups, like in church, we're all singing the same yeah. song and listening to the same music, and it makes a good group. Right, yeah, that's a really good point. That the music brings people together, and it's a, you know, it's a really powerful experience to be singing together um, more or less in unison. You know. uh, yeah, yeah, that's really good. You use a different part of the brain. You use a different part of the brain. Uh, can you say more about that? I'm not. Uh, that's about all I know. Okay. Is when you talk, you use part of the brain, and when you sing, right. you sing and other emotions are in another part of the brain. Sure. I mean, I know this from experience, and you guys are probably familiar with folks who have lost memory. Uh, is that what you were going to say, Tara? Yeah. yeah. Have you observed that? Uh, yes. Yeah. Right. And they, are happy. they can't communicate, can't talk, but singing, it's like it unlocks something. Powerful stuff. Uh, so we're going to talk about singing and about hymns generally and about the hymn of praise in particular today. So take a look at your, your handout here. Number two on your handout. Singing is a fundamental expression of our faith in God. Singing is a fundamental expression of our faith in God. I put it that way because it's the sort of thing that you think, well, singing is nice, but it's not, it's not necessary. You know, it's kind of a, uh, a, just an add-on. It's some of the, the window dressing of the faith, as it were. You looking for small people? No. No. She the wrong one. Oh, okay. <laughs> Anybody else? Everybody got one that needs one? Yeah, I make them all look alike, so that's kind of tricky, isn't it? But in the scriptures are very clear that singing is not some addendum to our faith, but it's a fundamental expression of our faith. I mean, you can just look at the book of Psalms, but I'll just give you one verse from Psalm. Psalm 30, verse 4. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. Again and again and again in the Psalms, we have that admonition. Sing, sing to the Lord. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord. But the ones that interest me even more are in the New Testament. So in Colossians 3, it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Lovely phrase, the word of Christ, dwell in you richly. Well, how do we do that, Paul? It says, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So I think this gets to what you were saying about how it facilitates memory. How does the word of Christ dwell in us richly? One of the ways, by singing Singing psalms, 
singing hymns, singing spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. Also, just as a side note, isn't it interesting that the other thing that mentions there is teaching? And haven't you experienced that as well? That in teaching others, it helps the word to dwell more in you. In part, just because you've got to study up so that you know what you're saying to somebody else. But it's like it, it uh, unleashes it in a new way in your own mind and heart. Then again, Ephesians 5. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Okay. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Some people would say, well, I wish you would only sing with your heart because we don't want to hear your voice. But that's not what Paul is saying here. See? It's with your heart and with your lips, with your, with your mouth. Um, that here's a way that we are, uh, the word of Christ dwells in us richly, that we are filled with the Spirit. Um, so uh, let me just ask you guys, growing up, did, did singing have um, a role to play in your faith formation? Was that something that happened in your house that you really valued in your church? What, what place or role did singing have in your own personal um, upbringing and faith formation? Yeah, Carla. My mother had a friend who went blind, and she was so thankful she had memorized so many hymns sure. and songs. So I determined, I had a little red hymnal, hmm. and I started at the beginning, and I began to memorize. As a, as a child? Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. I was probably 10 or 12 when I started. Sure. That's fascinating. Yeah, so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I never got through the whole hymn. Didn't get through the whole hymn. <laughs> they kept changing the hymn. That's what they did. <laughs> yeah, Sue. In, in our family, I grew up, I had, I'm from a family of eight children. Mm. And my grandparents lived near us, and you know my parents, and then we had uh, other family that would come on holidays in particular, and they could play the piano and sing, and they would sing all night, all day and all night. Yeah. And we would sing with them, and we all had a song. And it was really, um, really uplifting, very fun. Isn't that and wonderful? How neat to hear yeah. the little one singing right now, right on cue, right? <laughs> Um, yeah, others of you, what, as part of your own upbringing and faith formation, what, what role did singing have? Yeah, Bill. Kathy and I grew up in the same church, and uh, there was one hymn that was sung every Sunday, at least for many, many Sundays. And we, when we sing it here, uh, for me at least, all of those memories sure, right. flood back in. Yeah. I mean, I could see faces. I mean, it, it just... It, it, the fullness of those memories come yeah. back with that one hymn. That's a good point, that there is, um, it facilitates memorizing words, but it also carries with it a lot of associations mm -hmm. and drags those along, just like smell does, too. Mm -hmm. So well, sing, yeah. There's another piece to it when you were asking about this, and you mentioned smelling or, or you right. know, tasting, and to, to me, singing or songs are like looking at, at wonderful art. Yeah. Looking at, you know, a, a, to look at scenery is a, a very pleasurable mm -hmm. visual experience. Mm -hmm. uh, to hear, but to, and to, to hear singing is a, an oral experience. Sure. It, it's like beauty in the ears. Oh, you're, you're preaching now, Bill. That's really good. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's like beauty in the ears, Lord willing. Um, but yeah, it is very much so. I think especially gathered together among the saints in worship, hearing people 
sing together is just such a wonderful experience. This past week, um, I had our All Pastors Conference. And this is often one of my favorite things about these conferences is you get like 400 pastors who know their songs and can all, you know, belt it out. It's a really powerful experience. And beauty for the ears. I like that. I'm going to steal that. So uh, within the scriptures, we see that God's people sing for various and sundry reasons. And there's a lot of overlap here with what we've already talked about. But this is just um, a representative sample here. So praise, uh, Psalm 98. And these are all just taken from the Psalms. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing praises to him, all the earth. There's confession of faith, Psalm 107. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Sing what you believe. Then also the confession of sins. So remember, these are song. These psalms are songs. So Psalm one thirty: If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? Okay. Comfort: Why are you cast down, O my soul? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him. And catechesis or education: Come, O children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. From Psalm thirty-four. All these and and other reasons too show up in the scriptures of why God's people sing. It's part and parcel of our faith. And this is why Luther said, I mean, Luther was uh, famously a, a great lover of music, himself a musician. And he says, next to the word of God, music deserves the highest praise. The gift of language combined with the gift of song was given to man that he should proclaim the word of God through music. Luther would say elsewhere also that music helps to tame the emotions that music, especially when it's joined to the word of God, because um, music can be a very emotional sort of thing, can't it? And have you ever had this happen where you're listening to a song and you know, it's, get, it's getting you kind of emotional or something, like, oh, this is so beautiful, and you realize you're not even really listening to the words? You're like, what are we actually singing about here? You know, I'm not talking about hymns in church. I'm talking, you know, hear something on the radio and maybe like some strings come in, some violin and it happens and you know, a tear comes down your cheek. And like, what am I singing about here? Um, and Luther would say, because music is so powerful and the emotions are so powerful, he said, we need, to, we need to tutor our emotions. They need to be disciplined so that we're not just, you know, weeping on any old song, but that uh, there, our emotions are aligned, our loves are ordered according to God's truth, so that we join the music to, and, and the melody to the words which are, are founded on God's word. That's where the real power comes in, see? So that it's not just manipulative. I'll give you one example of this, because um, I've seen it happen before. I was, at, it was, in, I was in college, and... Um, I went to one of these kind of big box churches and, you know, no, not casting any aspersions on the ministry. They were doing a lot of good things, but the, the praise band came up and they were singing the song and I was like really getting into it. Everybody's really getting into it. And, uh, you know, people, hands up, they're singing and everything. And then I was like, what song is this? And I realized it was a U2 song, <laughs> the rock band U2. And uh, you know, to be fair, it was one of their songs that was kind of loosely based off of a, a passage of the Bible. But I was like, guys, like, there's nothing in here about Christ. There's nothing in here about God or what he's done. It's just a U2 song, okay? Loosely based on the Bible. But why are people getting into it? Why are they lifting their hands up and everything? Because this is a good song, right? It's, it's catchy. Like it, but that's where music can be manipulative. 
if you're not really thinking about what is, what is the truth that's being expressed in here. Incidentally, that's also one of the great values of the hymnal. When we're singing hymns from the hymnal, they're not all of equal quality or value. You got 600 songs in there. Some are going to be better than others, right? Mm -hmm. But what it tells us is others smarter than us have gone through here and kind of vetted them, said, okay, is this, is this in, in tune, pardon the pun, with the word of God, right? Or is it teaching something contrary to it? So it sort of it gives us that confidence. It doesn't mean there's, that only songs that are in the hymnal are any good, but the ones that are in there, we can say, okay, this is something that's been looked at. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So, all right, get off that soapbox there. So let's get into um, the particular hymn of praise as we're going through the liturgy, and we've been working our way through it chronologically, if you will. We, last week we did the intro it, the Kyrie, and then the next thing that comes up is what's called the hymn of praise. And in our modern liturgies, there's two options for this, um, kind of a choose-your-own-adventure sort of thing there. Um, and we're going to talk about both of them. So today we sang the hymn of praise known as? This is the feast. This is the feast, that's right. Um, and the other one, uh, which is the, the more ancient one, is the, the Gloria, the Gloria in excelsis, which comes from the Latin, which means glory in the highest. Gloria. Yes. Lovely Christmas carol. Uh, glory to God in the highest and peace to his people on earth. This Gloria, this hymn of praise, is the great hymn of the incarnation. It's the great hymn of the incarnation. Because you remember where that line, glory to God in the highest and peace to his people on earth, where does that come from in the Bible? Without looking at the handout. <laughs> Too late, yeah. Okay, go ahead. That's okay. It comes from Christmas, right? The Christmas gospel, a.k.a. the Charlie Brown gospel. Uh, or uh, more to the point, uh, what's his name? Linus. Linus, yes. Um, from Luke chapter 2. It reads, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Okay. So this is a wonderful, very familiar passage. And uh, one neat thing to point out about it, it says that the angel of the Lord appeared to the shepherds and they were filled with what? Great fear, with great fear. But then the angel said to them, fear not for behold, I bring you good news of what? Great joy. Yes, their great fear is met with great joy from the Lord. But then they, they sing this song, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is the song of the incarnation. The shepherds announce this good news because now there's a baby that's been born in Bethlehem. That now the God has become man and is dwelling among us. So let's pause and think for a second. That's where it comes from in the scriptures. But why would that be tied to our worship? Why would this be um, a verse 
that we would want to have recited again and again and again to, as we've said, probably commit to heart, learn by heart because it's joined to, to music. What do you think would be the significance of this within our worship life, within the liturgy? Why, why this verse? Because we, we worship Jesus, the triune God. Okay, great. So at the most fundamental level, it's because we're worshiping Christ. And so this is the, the song of Christ. Let's drill down on that a little bit more. So I told you this song is the, uh, the great hymn of the incarnation, okay? Which is that fancy $5 word that means becoming flesh, right? God becoming flesh and dwelling among us. So why would that be especially fitting as we gather for worship to, to hear that in our worship of Christ? What are we doing when we gather for worship? Why do we? What's that? Worshiping. Well, we're worshiping, yes. Remember we talked about in the first week that worship is fundamentally not about what what we do for God, but about what God does for us. That's right. How he continues to come down to us in his gifts. So you might think of it like this way. Um, in that first Christmas, God came down and dwelled among us as this baby, right? Here, God has become flesh in the person of of his son. Now Christ is resurrected and ascended and at the right hand of the Father. But each week, when we gather together for worship, it's like our Lord is coming to dwell among us in his midst, in our midst, as we receive his gifts. So that number five on your handout here, singing the Gloria every Sunday becomes a little Christmas. Every Sunday becomes a little Christmas. We're, we're expressing and, and praising God that he keeps dwelling among us, see? That he continues to come down to us. A, uh, a mid-20th century theologian with the great name Berthold von Schenk. <laughs> Sounds like he could be a villain in some movie, right? <laughs> Berthold von Schenk. All right, von Schenk. But he's a good guy, and he has this to say. As Jesus was born in Bethlehem, so he also wants to enter into our hearts. As he came into the world on that first Christmas day, so he comes to us in his word and in his sacrament. Every Sunday becomes Christmas, and we join with the angels in the first Christmas carol. Isn't that lovely put? Well, how, it's, how it's put there? Um, and as I was thinking about that, my mind went back to this uh, line from O Little Town of Bethlehem. Let's sing it together there. You have verse 4 from O Little Town of Bethlehem. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in, be born in us today. Isn't that beautiful? Uh, you're ready to keep going. Yeah, That was one part of the section that you memorized, Mrs. Wall, I see. Um. And so now, I mean, we can really run with this, right? The, the manger of our hearts, filled with, with all manner of, of disgusting stuff, right? Just like uh, the manger might be. Here's, you know, here's the place where the animals feed. But now, God comes and dwells in our midst and in your heart. And when he does, what does he do? He casts out our sin and enters in. Be born in us today born in us today so that every Sunday is a little Christmas.
I think it's just beautifully put. But this is part of what the mindset that we're in when we sing that glory to God. Glory to God in the highest and peace to his people on earth. We're put back on Christmas Day. All right. Other thoughts or questions, comments about that? Yeah, go ahead, Sally. You know, Handel's Messiah is mm. just full of Bible verses. Very much. That's the whole thing, yeah. And I remember most of the Bible verses from listening to Handel's Messiah. Yeah. I love that part where he says, and sudden, I can't sing, unfortunately. Glory to God. No, Go. no, no. When the angel, and suddenly there was And a suddenly there was the angel a multitude. Just wind me up, Sally. It's marvelous because <laughs> you see this one angel appearing. And then the multitude of angels yes. coming. They're just flying in from everywhere. Yes. You just see that scene yes. from when you listen to Handel's Messiah. So as our brother, uh, Mr. Beck, would say, it paints a beautiful oral picture, right? Yeah. We're able to, to hear that and to feel that sense of all the angels gathering together. And that fits, thank you for bringing that up, that also fits with what we'll talk about later when it comes to communion. I touched on this a couple of weeks ago on the Feast of St. Michael and All Angels. You know, when we gather together at the Lord's Supper, we say, therefore, with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven. And what, what that's expressing is that as we gather together at the Lord's table, that we are gathering together with the communion of saints, which is to say those who have already passed on before us with the heavenly host, with all the angels. And there used to be this pious tradition that um, the churchyard, or also known as what? Cemetery. Okay. Yeah. Churchyard, that's another term for the, the cemetery, not just like the, the yard out front. We still got one over here. I do know about that. Yeah. Oh, oh, the Norwalk has it right next to it. That's right. Um, yeah, and so this was, this was part of the idea is the cemetery would be on the other side of the chancel so that as we are gathered together receiving the Lord's Supper with angels and archangels, that it's like all of our loved ones who have gone before us in the faith are still gathered together with us. They're on the other side of, of the veil that separates heaven and earth. They're on the east side so that they see the resurrection. That's right. They're on the east side. And we're, we, face, we face the east as we're gathered together. So ours is also on the east side. You just have to go about three quarters of a mile. But they're over there. They're over there. So good. Thank you, Sally. All right. I want to go a little bit deeper into the rest of the Gloria because it's not just... Um, that first that line from Luke, there's more to it. So that number six on your handout, the Gloria is robustly Christological and Trinitarian. Oh, there's a mouthful. Okay. So two words there. <clears throat> Christological, you hear Christ in there. Okay, so um, when we say talk about Christology, it means the teaching about Christ, okay, and who Christ is. And if something is Christological, that means it's related to Christ, okay? Brings us into the, the presence and the, the truth of Christ. And Trinitarian, same kind of thing. That's just an adjective based off of the noun Trinity. So if it's Trinitarian, it's extolling and exalting the Trinity. So you've probably noticed this before, but I want to highlight for you, there's this pattern here. So notice it starts out with God the Father. Lord God, heavenly King, almighty God and Father, we worship you, we give you thanks, we praise you for your glory. Okay. So that at the beginning of the song, we're addressing God the Father. Now notice the turn in the next line. Lord Jesus Christ, only Son of the Father, Lord God, Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world. Have mercy on us. 
you are seated at the right hand of the Father. Receive our prayer. For you alone are the Holy One. You alone are the Lord. You alone are the Most High, Jesus Christ. So you have several lines that are centered on the second person of the Trinity. Thus, it's profoundly Christological. But then, not to be uh, left out, the last line there, with the Holy Spirit, in the glory of God the Father, amen. Say the Holy Spirit kind of gets short shrift there. You know, Jesus gets like three or four lines, Holy Spirit gets one clause. Why do you think that would be? Why is it that the Holy Spirit gets comparatively less, um, less attention there than Jesus does? all the way. Say it again. I said we does all the way. We start the whole life of Jesus. We, I mean, we, we never, there's not, nothing in the Bible of, of comparable uh, length and detail about the Holy Spirit. Okay, yeah. So, I mean, for one thing, we've got a lot more, uh, uh, a lot more content about Jesus than we do about the Spirit. True enough, good. What else? What does the Spirit do? What's the Spirit's fundamental job? What is, what is the Holy Spirit all about doing for God's people? Working faith in our hearts. Working faith in our hearts, and then faith in whom? Faith in Christ, right? Um, the Holy Spirit doesn't strive to draw attention to himself. The Holy Spirit is ever and always drawing attention to Christ. That's, that's his job. That's what he wants to do, to lead us back to Christ, to point us to Christ. In the great um, upper room discourse, John chapters 13 through 17, Jesus says this and, and highlights this work of the Holy Spirit, that now all the words that I have said to you, the Holy Spirit will bring to mind for you. Holy Spirit points you back to Christ, points you back to his word. He, uh, he wants to be backstage, as it were, working the spotlight and that spotlight he's putting on Jesus, not on himself. He's the mirror. Christ is reflected in him. Very well put. That the spirit is the mirror and Christ is reflected in him. In him. Yes, sir? When Jesus sent out his disciples, he said, don't worry about what you're going to say. The Holy Spirit will give you the word. That's right. That's right. And, um, you know, in the book of Acts, it's so full of the Holy Spirit yep. guiding the... Um, apostles yes. telling them where to go and how to go and what to say. Right. That's, that's a great point that everywhere you see in, in the scriptures in the New Testament, especially in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit is working and you, you, you're constantly reminded of it, but he's not like coming up, ta-da, Holy Spirit. He's behind there pointing people to Christ, strengthening the believers so that it's sometimes said it shouldn't be called the Acts of the Apostles, but the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Because here's the Spirit bringing people to faith, pointing them to Christ, and that's still the case today. Yeah, he's the giver of good ideas also. He's the giver of good ideas. God's ideas. Yes, the, he's our divine muse. That's right. Um, and, and points us back to, uh, to our Savior. Um, it's interesting where we sometimes, and this isn't a problem for Lutherans, let me assure you, but um, sometimes in, in other traditions, uh, they can, you can get too preoccupied with the Holy Spirit and on what the, the Spirit is doing. And the Spirit kind of takes center stage. So this would be in more of the kind of charismatic traditions and so forth. And I think that we as Lutherans have things to learn from these folks because we tend to put the Spirit so far in the background that you even wonder, like, is he still active? Is he working? Yes. And we want to bring that out. I would say that um, where you know, more charismatic folks go too far is the Holy Spirit doesn't want to be the featured act. 
Okay? The Holy Spirit wants Christ to be the featured act. But you can go off too far in, in both directions. Yeah. Carla and then Sally. Dr. Richard Kemmer, who used to speak at the camp, yeah. and during the big charismatic right. fluff that was going on, someone asked him you know, what he thought about it. He says, I think it's great. Now we need a one for the Holy for, for Christ and one for the Father. There you go. Bring equal value or more so. Sure. It's well put. Yeah, Sally. I think in your example in the sermon where you were wondering about what you're going to say exactly. to a woman, yes. I think probably the Holy Spirit gave you a... That's not a probably, Sally. That is most definitely true. Yes. And I think that in the same way, if we're, if we're in a situation where we want to speak, yes. we, can, we forget sometimes we can call on the Holy Spirit Absolutely. to help us. Absolutely. Um, the Holy Spirit, so what Sally was saying is the story that I shared in the sermon today is a, a case in point of not knowing what to say, and God, in his mercy, you know, gives you that word. And you've probably had those experiences where you're like, I don't even know where that came from or where that thought came into my, popped into my mind, the, the word to say in that moment. It's almost like it wasn't me speaking. and say, yeah, that's, that's accurate. And uh, Tom Yas wasn't, wasn't there today, but I think something Tom off, often says to me that, you know, God takes care of fools and little children. See? And uh, he, sophomores. He, sophomores, exactly. Wise fools like you and me. Uh, God bless him for it. Thank you, Lord. Um, so, so that's what this, uh, this song, this Gloria, this hymn of praise is ushering us into. And one more thing to say about that, too, with that Trinitarian side of it. Um, before even, well, certainly before the Nicene Creed, and perhaps even before the Apostles' Creed, which are these formal confessions of faith, yes, but they're especially formal Trinitarian confessions of faith. Um, before those were, were formalized, God's people were already singing praise to God as Trinity. So before they had just you know, a bullet point kind of propositions, they were singing to God. One of those songs that we still have with us today, we don't use a whole lot because we don't do matins as much anymore, is the song called the Te Deum. Some of you are familiar with the, the Te Deum? Uh, yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, 941 is that versification. We praise you and acknowledge you, O God, to be the Lord. Te Deum. And the Te Deum predates, um, so far as we can tell, predates the Nicene Creed. So that God's people were already worshiping God as Trinity before they had even kind of rationally put it together. It's almost like one day they were kind of standing around saying, man, Bob, we worship God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What does that mean? I don't know, Tom. We ought to figure that out. We ought, we ought to formalize that. I, I don't mean to make light of it, but really before they had formalized the doctrine about the Trinity, they were worshiping and praising God as Trinity, which actually is not a terrible pattern um, for us to emulate either because what we can't always explain, we can still exclaim. How's that for you? Uh, there, the great uh, hymn writer Martin Franzman, um, you know, Thy Strong Word and many other great hymns, he would say, all theology is doxology. In other words, all theology finally leads us to praise of God if it's doing its job, see? And if, if that teaching about God doesn't lead you back to him and to praise to him, give thanks to him for who he is and what he has done for us, then it, it's probably leading you astray. It should always be pointing us back to God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Good. All right, any other thoughts or questions about the Gloria before we move on to our other uh, hymn of praise? All right, 
then let's go into the one, this is the feast that we sang today. I'm curious, if you guys don't mind doing a quick vote, which, do you have a preference? This is the feast or the Gloria? All right, let's see. Show of hands, don't worry. I'm, I like both of them. I'm not going to be offended or something. If, uh, raise your hand if you prefer the glory to God, the Gloria. Is that the first one? Yeah, that's the first. Glory to God in the highest. Oh, no, no. no. The first, this is the feast? Oh, I'm, I'm not talking about the music, oh. just the, oh. yeah, necessarily. Okay, how many of you prefer this is the feast? Well, there's a lot Whoa. more detail than the... Yeah, interesting. Okay, so let me, I'm going to get into this, but I'm, I'm curious. If, I mean, don't mind. What, what do you prefer about this is the feast? Oh, okay. So in terms of the singability, Eileen says it always has that refrain, comes back to that kind of joyful refrain. This is the feast of victory for our God. Good. Other thoughts? Why you prefer? Yeah, Lily. There's more words to use to express your joy. Sure, there's, yeah. There's more words in it. There's more words in it yeah. to uh, express your joy. Sure, I mean, the, um, the Gloria is really, well, how should I put it? It's really savoring this truth of who God is as you know, Trinity and Christ, but it does start to sound a, a little repetitive, perhaps, whereas this is the feast is kind of more expansive. Sure. Yeah, Ann. And two things. The, uh, this is the feast but has a story in it. Hmm. Yeah. Kind of. Kind of the, the story is at the center of it. Yeah, yeah. And I also like that it uses the passages from Revelation. Revelation. Good. We're going to get into that in just a minute. But I like how you put that, too. Ann says there's a story to this is the feast. And, um, okay, just quick geek out here because this is, this is interesting. So theologians talk about two ways to talk about God as Trinity of understandings. And one is um, the imminent Trinity and the other is the economic Trinity. Okay. Imminent and economic. You're like, well, economic, that sounds weird. I'll explain in just a minute. So imminent Trinity, imminent way of understanding Trinity, I-M-M-A-N-E, ENT, is um, exploring who God is within God's own self, trying to make sense of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and, and, and trying to unpack that divine Trinitarian identity. The Nicene Creed is the, the exemplar creed of the imminent Trinity, of just trying to understand the, the Trinity within God's own self. It's very abstract. And that's why it's also very difficult for us to wrap our minds around. Okay? And I would say that the Gloria also corresponds to this imminent understanding of the Trinity. Understand, I'm not saying one is right and one is wrong. These are two different perspectives or ways of, of making sense of who God is. Okay? On the flip side, what's called the economic Trinity, it's from the Greek word oikonomia. We get economy from that. But what, what that means is a plan or purpose. Okay? So the oikonomia was, oikos is the word for house, and nomos is the word for law. It was the, the law of the house, the way that the household works, okay? Home, your home economy. Um, it's, it's just the, the way that it works, that pattern of it. So when we talk about the economic trinity, it's not focused on God within God's own self. It's focused on God's actions as he has revealed himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, through his actions. Now, we know that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all active in all of God's works. Okay? But there are some that are more associated with certain works than others. 
I mean, you know this, you know your small catechism. When we think of creation, which person of the Trinity do we think of? The Father. The Father. When we think of redemption, which person? The Son. The Son. When we think of uh, sanctification or, or recreation, who's that? Spirit. Spirit, okay? And, of course, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all active in creation, redemption, and sanctification. But it's like in each of those modes, that God makes himself known especially in a certain way. And there's also a chronological unfolding to this as well, because creation, Genesis chapter 1, redemption, you know, it's kind of unfolding through the scriptures, then you get into the New Testament, and then you get to Pentecost and the outpouring of the, of the Holy Spirit. And that's why then, oh man, Pastor, you're getting way off base here. Okay, that's why in the church year, we have what we call the festival half of the church year, where it's really focused at the beginning on the Father and the promises of the Father and the season of Advent. And then, starting from Christmas, all the way up through Easter, the focus is on Christ, his ministry, and who he is. Then we get to Pentecost. It sort of mirrors the, uh, the same amount of ink that's given in Gloria to the Holy Spirit. We have Pentecost, the great festival of the Holy Spirit, and one was enough. That was good. Because the next Sunday, for you church year geeks, what's the next Sunday after Pentecost? Holy Trinity. Holy Trinity. I would expect my altar guild. Uh, folks, to the, yes. <laughs> um, Holy Trinity. And why is that? It's because now, through that festival half of the church year, it's this economic trinity, God and his works, has been unfolded and unfurled before our eyes. And so Trinity Sunday is kind of like a capstone Sunday. It's, it's sort of like saying, what have we learned about God <laughs> through this story and over the last few months? You with me? Yeah, go ahead. I want to ask, uh, they used to refer to all the Sundays after Trinity. Then suddenly, about 20 years ago, they started yep. referring to them all as Sundays after Pentecost. Pentecost, yes. And why was that? And, uh, okay, quick answer. John asks, why did it used to be Sundays after Trinity and not Sundays after Pentecost? So quick answer to that is that changed when um, uh, the churches um, changed from the three-year lectionary to the, or from the one-year lectionary to the three-year lectionary? Um, so, uh, and it's, it's still this case in churches that use the one-year lectionary, you number it after Trinity. So it's in the three-year lectionary, you number it after Pentecost. I think it was partially just a way to distinguish between the two lectionaries. Yep, so there you have it. All right, so all of this, why did I, I say all this? Because Anne uh, you know, knew the right words to say to, to kind of set me off. She said, this is, the, <laughs> this is the feast, has a story to it. So, okay, so you can think of it this way, just to, to recap. Imminent Trinity, Nicene Creed, glory to God in the highest. Economic Trinity, Apostles' Creed. It doesn't get into kind of the, the metaphysics of God. You don't have very God of very God being of one substance with the Father. That's Nicene Creed. The Apostles' Creed, it's focused on, boom, here's who God is. This is what he did, right? He created, he suffered, he died, he rose. So you've got Apostles' Creed, Economic Trinity, this is the feast. All right. Uh oh, yes, go ahead, my dear. So do we say, so do we say the Nice Cuisine Creed on Gloria Sundays and we say the Apostles' Creed on This is the Feast Sunday? This is literally the first time I've ever pieced it together this way in, in my mind. So not intentionally, but maybe the Holy Spirit has done that without, I'll have to go back through all the services I've ever led and see if that's been the case. But I can only say that I haven't intentionally done that. And it was not that way today, right? So we said the Nicene Creed and saying this is the feast. But now I'm going to pay more attention to that. Yes. The Apostles' Creed is used on baptisms. 
Yeah, so the Apostles' Creed is, I mean, there's other associations with each of the creeds. So yeah, the Apostles' Creed is especially the, the baptismal creed. Yeah, very much so. All right. I was told in Nicene was when you had communion. Yeah, so that's why I try to work in the Apostles' Creed as well. Otherwise, we wouldn't hear it nearly as much. All right, so this is the feast then, to make one more distinction between the two, is really the great hymn of Easter. These two great feasts of the church. So the Gloria, great hymn of the incarnation of Christmas. This is the feast, the great hymn of Easter. This is the feast of victory for our God. Alleluia, alleluia, alleluia. It's packing in all of those alleluias, just like we want to do on, on Easter Sunday. Um, when we think about what is this feast, there's more than one way to understand it, but from this great passage from Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. This is the feast. And what's on the menu? Death. Isn't that interesting? That, you're like, oh, that sounds delicious. Um, but understand what I'm saying here. It's that God has swallowed up death forever. The feast of victory is us, parta- <laughs> it's us partaking, <clears throat> partaking of the body and blood of Christ the crucified and resurrected Christ who has the victory over death and the grave. Uh, this is why in the early church, it would be not uncommon for the Lord's Supper to be referred, of, referred to as the medicine of immortality. Because in, in taking this uh, body and blood, this bread and wine, we are being inoculated against death. See? Because Jesus has that victory. He has swallowed up death forever. So this is the feast is now that celebration. Um, number eight on your handout, this, by this feast, God also constitutes us as his people. Notice these words. It says, worthy is Christ the lamb who was slain, whose blood set us free to be people of God. Set us free to be people of God. As Anne alluded to, this is picking up uh, language from the book of Revelation. So Revelation 5 says, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open seals for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. We become truly the people that we are meant to be through the, the shed blood of our Savior. And from the first chapter of Revelation, right at the beginning of, of the book, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He has made us into his people, made us his priests. Last thing, number nine. Gathered for the feast, heaven has already begun. And this is when you talk about the story that's here um, in, in this song. It comes through at the end. We're singing with all the people of God, joining in the hymn of all creation. And then that last line, For the Lamb who was slain has begun his reign. Alleluia, alleluia. 
That reign has begun already. God's kingdom has already come in principle in Christ. And what we are looking forward to is the full consummation of that feast when our Savior comes again. And this is captured in one of the post-communion prayers, which says, Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, you have given us a foretaste of the feast to come in the Holy Supper of your Son's body and blood. We gather together around the Lord's table, receive this feast, and with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven gathered together and here we're reminded and we enact the fact that this kingdom has already begun, that the lamb who was slain has already begun his reign. Can I get an amen? Amen. Amen. All right. Thank you very much, guys. It's been great digging into this with you and look forward to seeing you next week.